Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text of the first six verses from the Gospel reading. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, you'd better buckle up. You'd better fasten your seatbelts because what you just heard Jesus say from Matthew 10 is going to put you on rubber leg street if it didn't do so already. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ today in Matthew 10 is out to repent you and to faith you. That's his cup of tea, you know. So let's get started, shall we? Jesus in the text gives you the heads up. I have not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Swords, what do they do? They wound mortally. Swords are meant to do what? Kill. Jesus would do that to you? Absolutely he would. He would daily put your sinful nature to death so that you will live in and from your baptism daily. Because if that's not happening in your life, I'm here to tell you that you're living outside of your baptism and that can only end one way. In what way is that? Hellaciously. Now, because Jesus alone is God's Son, the Savior of the world, he not only unites, but he also divides, as you have witnessed. Some believe in Jesus, others do not. And so I've seen it with my own eyes as a pastor. Faith in Jesus Christ as Savior or not believing in Jesus Christ as Savior will set a son against his father and a mother against her daughter. Families, yes indeed, become divided when some in the family are converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The faithers get treated like lepers or outcasts. If you're one of our Lord's hangers-on, disciples or trusters, your enemies might just turn out to be members of your, your own family who do not believe in him. So just in case you haven't figured it out by now, being a disciple of Jesus is not easy-peasy lemon-squeezy. Well, the Lord isn't done preaching in the text. He has more to say in the way of repenting you and faithing you. Listen, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Lord Jesus says. He says, whoever loves father or mother, son or daughter, more than me. Now, Jesus doesn't say you're not supposed to love them, but he says more than me is not worthy of me. I'm going to repeat it, because I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Is Jesus saying you're not supposed to love your parents or children? No. But he says, if you love them more than me, that's the problem. Get it? Well, that's his point. Jesus says it. And boy, do we Americans need to hear it. Jesus, in the text, puts himself above. Are you listening? Jesus puts himself above every human and every family relationship. Nothing. Are you listening? Nothing or no one is to come between him and you. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because without Jesus, 
Without Jesus, you will lose everything, including your own life. To love another more than Son of God, Savior Jesus, is to make an idol of that person, whether it's your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, or an in-law into an idol. And I'm here to tell you that idols always crumble under the pressure of being our gods. Our idols will disappoint us. They will fail to live up to our expectations, and ultimately, our idols do not save us. So I ask you all, quite seriously, do you worship your children instead of Jesus? Children, do you worship your parents more than Jesus? Do you worship, and just fill in the blank, instead of Jesus? If so, it's time to repent. You must die to such idolatry. That's why I said Americans need to die to this day. Because parents have made their children into idols. Now you begin to see why Jesus says, I have come to bring a sword. And like any preacher, Jesus has more to say. For more repentance that leads to faith only in him. Check it out. Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Crosses do what? They, like the sword, kill. Taking up the cross is not simply enduring little bumps, little bruises, or these little inconveniences of our lives. Taking up your cross is dying. It's death, not just once, but every day of your life. Living in and from your baptism into Jesus means dying to your sin every day and then arising to live before him in faith. To be baptized in our Lord's name and being his disciple means what? It means losing everything so that you can win it all. It means losing everything we are in Adam, our sinful Adam, and every idol in our lives must be nailed to the cross with Jesus. In other words, we must become literally nothing so that Jesus is everything in our life. Listen again to how radical, and yet, and yet, how totally freeing it is to be a baptized Christian that follows Jesus as a disciple. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. I'm going to repeat that. Whoever finds his life will lose it, Jesus says. And then he says this, whoever loses his life for my sake, then you find it. This is the essence of faith in Jesus. So I ask again, quite seriously today, where do you find your life? Huh? Where do you find it? Deep down inside yourself? Do you find your life in your achievements in your life, in your abilities, or maybe in your riches? If so, then Jesus tells you that you're going to lose it. In other words, if you believe that you have life, namely real life, in the things of this world, you have a life that is doomed to perish with all the things of this world. However, to lose your life in the world for the sake of Jesus, 
to die with him in your baptism, to be repented daily from idolatry, to be faith in Jesus and to be joined to his cross is finally then to discover what? The one real life who is L-I-F-E, Jesus Christ himself. So brothers and sisters, here is the essential point of today's words of Jesus from Matthew 10. He alone, yes, he alone must be at the center, not just simply high on the list of priorities, namely Jesus, family, work, etc. Our Lord and his Good Friday cross must be central in every part of your life. So Jesus must get between father and son, mother and daughter, or between each and every one of us. Jesus must stand in the breach or there will be no true and lasting peace. Now, I know we all want peace. We want peace in this world. We want peace in our communities. We want peace in our, in our families. The trouble is, is that we want peace on our own terms, according to our own agendas. We seek peace in the security of wealth and possessions, thinking that if we only have enough for tomorrow, and the next day, and the next year, why, we can have a measure of peace today. But I'm here to tell you, those of you who have been through this, you know that there is never enough with that kind of idolatry. And each new acquisition of wealth and possessions will bring you what? More and more what? Anxiety, because you think you're going to lose it. We all seek peace and solitude, don't we? So we isolate ourselves from each other, thinking that if we can just isolate ourselves from the negative impact and energy of people like me, then maybe you can have some measure of peace with yourself. And so we wall ourselves up behind our own iron gates, our stone walls, and our closed metal doors. We isolate ourselves in office cubicles, in our SUVs, and in a world that minimizes any meaningful contact with our neighbors. We wall ourselves behind computer screens, big screen TVs, or guess what? You know where I'm going with that little thing we hold in our hand, the little smartphones. And we ignore the real world around us with its real people in favor of a virtual world which we think that we can control. Well, the truth of the matter, brothers and sisters, is this, is that real peace always comes with what? With the shedding of blood. Peace always comes at the tip of the the sword. And so there's no cheap peace that Jesus speaks of here in Matthew 10. No half-hearted, comfortable, complacent peace worked out by calculated compromise. It is a peace that comes with the sword of the Holy Spirit, namely the Word of God. A sharp, two-edged sword of law and gospel that kills and makes alive, that opens the wounds and heals them. Or that repents you and faiths you. The sword that our Lord Jesus Christ brings is a sword that even touched him. His cross comes first and then comes yours. His death comes first and then comes yours. It was for the sake of our sin and our salvation 
that Jesus came under the law of God, that Jesus refused the easy piece of compromise with the world. The sword that Jesus himself experienced divided God the Father from God the Son as the Son of God bore the sin of the world in his crucified body to save you. What do I mean? Listen when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sword put his mother Mary at the foot of his cross and her son's bloody and brutal death pierced her soul with grief. I repeat to make the point. The sword caused Jesus himself to experience the God-forsakenness of our humanity, the darkness of God the Father's wrath, the suffering for all our sin. Jesus took up his cross to lead humanity through death to life. The only way for a sinner to live before God is to die with Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? I meant it. And not just simply to die in general. Everyone dies sooner or later. Have you looked at the cemetery lately? The only way for a sinner to live before God, I said, is not just to die, but to die with Jesus. Take up your cross, your death, and follow Jesus in the way he goes, namely through death to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely why Jesus said in the text, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. I can't take anything for granted anymore. <laughs> this stuff's not being taught in schools anymore. <coughs> okay, so we, we have a lectionary that we follow. And we're not the only ones. The Methodists do it. The Presbyterians do it. The Roman Catholic. All, all Christianity does this. We follow a lectionary. <coughs> Pardon me. And so we have three series of readings that we can have from the Old Testament, an epistle, and a gospel. We're in series A right now. Do you see that? Where it says three-year lectionary series A. Do you see that on page 14? Towards the top, middle, and red. You see that? So we're in series A. So if you'll notice, for example, go to page 15. And you find today's date. Do you see it? July 2nd? Like on page 15, towards the middle of the page? Do you see the readings that are assigned? The Old Testament is Jeremiah 28. The epistle is Romans 7. And you'll notice, look how often Romans is read as the epistle lesson. And so Pastor Kuhlman could have, over the last few months, said, I'm going to preach from Romans exclusively for the next, and I could have did a whole sermon series from Romans. And that's okay. And then, of course, the main gospel in Series A, not exclusive, but the main gospel that we hear from in Series A is Matthew. And then flip to the next page, Series B, which we will then begin at the end of November, beginning of December. The church year always begins with Advent, okay? So that's the end of November or beginning of December. So then we'll enter to Series B. And the primary gospel readings during season B, I said primary, not exclusive, is Mark. 
But you'll notice you get all kinds of different readings that you didn't have in series A. Different Old Testament readings, different epistles. Got it? And then two years from now, we'll be in series C, if you'll flip to page uh, 18. And the main gospel here is Luke. John is interspersed. Now here's my point to answer your question is, yes, pastors can do sermon series. And if they're faithful to the scriptures, good. However, be aware that the pastor might be just pushing his own hobby horses. So we in the Missouri Senate said, hey, let's, let's use a lectionary. Let's all agree to use this. And what happens is, is you get the full range of the Bible. Full range. And with the gospel readings, you get the entire life of Christ from conception, birth, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. You get it all. And then that way the pastor doesn't just tyrannize you and you never learn about his birth or his ministry. You know, I'm seriously, there are some, I would, I would argue that if, if, if congregations do, if the pastors simply do thematic preaching, the danger is, is that Christ might not ever get preached. Because again, this is one of the dangers is with thematic preaching in Protestant churches in America, it's about this. I'm going to write the word on the board. And we're not necessarily against this. But usually thematic preaching devolves into this, principles for living the Christian life. Now, we're not opposed to living a Christian life. We are very much for living a Christian life. Okay? And you'll get that in all three of the readings that you have every Sunday. But the danger here is if, it, if it's only principles, then who might not ever get preached? Jesus. Because all the attention is how you need to be living. Make sense? And then Jesus and how he lived for you, for your salvation, might get forgotten. And I've observed that. So I hope that answers your question. Yep. Judy. So our hymnals are more than three years old. So what do you do every three years to start over? We recycle it. Yep. Yep. Because you all forget and so do I. <laughs> I mean, I can't even remember the sermon that's preached five minutes after it's done. Are you kidding me? Well, if you preach on each one, that'd be 18 years. Yep. 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 <laughs> and some pastors do that. Yeah. Yeah. Can I make one more remark, Mike? I, I want you, so just piggybacking on this. So pay attention, folks, every Sunday and see if you can notice a theme between all three readings, the Old Testament, the Epistle, and the Gospel. Sometimes there's not a theme in all three readings, but at least two of the, the Old Testament and the Gospel, they fit together. And that was done on purpose. Mike. So you're saying that a person can sit at home with an LSB and not go to church and say, well, I can just go by this and not have to worry about going to the congregation. I can just do this. Or if I was sick and I couldn't you know, make it or whatever. Now, there are certain areas, but, so, but it could be abused also. You know, say, well, I don't have to go to church. Right, a mature Christian would never talk like that. A mature Christian would never say, okay, I'll get a hymnal, I've got the readings, I don't need to go to church. A mature Christian wouldn't talk. An immature Christian talks like that. And so the immature Christian has to be, how shall I say it, rebuked. Yeah, what COVID, COVID illustrated very well the uh, 
I, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I hope this is helpful for you. It's helpful for me. It makes me a better pastor, better teacher. But I'm, I'm top of the head in it, so if I don't say it precisely as I should, have mercy on me. But COVID revealed very, very much to me uh, the devil at work where the church capitulated. I'm speaking the church in general, not Trinity here, but the church in general who said, okay, well, we just won't simply have services. I, I, if, you, if you remember <coughs> the, 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 the paper that I gave you last week to take home to read on Do Not Grieve the Holy Spirit from, from Ephesians 4. Do you remember from Acts 2? I hooked Acts 2 with Ephesians 4 about not grieving the Holy Spirit. What did we learn from Acts 2 and all the rest of Scripture? How is the church described as some isolated individual doing his or her own thing? Nope, that's not the church. But that's America. And that's the devil at work. The church in the Bible, like in Acts 2, is gathered around word and sacrament. Which means that the church is gathered around Jesus. The church is a physical community. The body of Christ gathered around her head, Jesus Christ. And COVID revealed that the church had lost her nerve. Now, Having said that, okay, does that mean that we don't care for people who might get sick? No. So there were precautions that we did at Trinity. So when the governor said only 10 at a time, we didn't just say, oh, well, we don't want to do that. We'll just cancel. My what did we do? We videotaped, but we had a service every half hour, nonstop. Kuhlman couldn't even have a potty break. <laughs> it was from like 8 a.m. to like 1 p.m. And people just signed up for times. And I think... Churches that didn't do that, they've never, they haven't recovered. They just haven't recovered because they capitulated. But that's just a pick. Does that, does, did you want to say more, Christy, on that? Rhonda and then Mike, please. And, and we, 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 we took the precautions. We cleansed everything, you know. The people that did not know that. Yeah. Well, in any event, having said what I said about the American individualism, during COVID, we did take the proper precautions, and we gave people the opportunity to come if they wanted to. Now, there were some people who said, I'm not going to take the chance. Okay. So, so we in love said, okay, we'll bear with you. And when the pandemic ends, come back. Okay. That, that's, how love, that's how love works, you see. Love is patient. Love is kind. It bears a lot, you know. Now, Mike, you, you were going to say something else? I said you're a shepherd by doing all that. That says a lot about you and his congregation. Well, um, I'm like Jeremiah. I don't want to do it. The Lord compels me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Paul. Paul says, I am compelled to preach the gospel. <laughs> that's a bad joke. Sorry. Yes, Judy. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why we that's why we videotape the services. Yep. And that's why Pastor Kuhlman, if people wanted, he'd come to their home and give them communion, which is another quick topic I want to refer to. Don't ever let a pastor say that you can do communion virtually. That is, that is impossible. It is imp church. I'll say it this way: Church is not a virtual event. Church is a physical encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and his physical word and sacrament. Now, the analogy I want to use, and I want to move on. Good grief. Barely get started. Here we are. 
How, if you're married, raise your hand. Try virtual marriage. <laughs> try, or let me put it to you more bluntly. Try virtual intimacy. It doesn't work. You may try it, and you may think it's fun at first. It doesn't work. Marriage is physical. It's contact. Okay, enough said. Any other questions? I don't, I, I don't even care if the president of the Missouri Senate said, and he didn't, by the way, but you must know that even if our president of our Senate said we can have communion virtually, you'll just simply say, no, no, we're going to have it physically. There was another hand. Yes, Tom. I was wondering how closely you follow the <coughs> lectionary. Do you how? follow it at all? I follow it, yes. Yeah, I follow it just as it is in the hymnal. So the readings that are assigned for the day are the readings that you hear as appointed every Sunday, except for two Sundays out of the year, and that's Mother's Day and Father's Day. Or sometimes I will free text it if there's a baptism. As a pastor, I have, you've noticed this, right? If somebody gets baptized, there are times I'll free text it, in other words, I'll use a text outside of the lectionary to push and extol holy baptism or the life of holy baptism. But for the most part, the lectionary we follow. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. By the military, they just they only give you a year, and then you come back home. But you, you can't be away from your family that long. You have to come back. You, know? you just right. can't stay away from your family. Yeah. That's why they say you after a year, you can come back for a while. Right. Yes, sir. Um, in the same sense, is online confession absolutely valid? Yeah. It is. It can be done. It can be done that. The gospel can be proclaimed in many ways, but communion is, is very physical and personal. <clears throat> okay. Now, the, the best case scenario is to come to church. Okay. Or see somebody face to face. Yeah. Let's keep going. Where was I? Let's go to the second paragraph. So in contrast to Pentecostals, second paragraph. The New Testament teaches that all those who have been baptized and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, 38. And what's more, there are not two baptisms, but only one, Ephesians 4, 5. One baptism, one Lord, one God. Now, I can't help myself. It is, it is a tragic thing for, for someone who is baptized to then later on in life say, well, I'm not. And I'm going to be re-baptized. That is, that is an immense spiritual tragedy. Why do I say that? Let me say it again. Let's say a Missouri Synod Lutheran who was baptized as an infant. According to the mandate and institution of Christ. The triune name and water. But then later on in life when this person becomes an adult. Gets involved with Pentecostals. And the Pentecostals ask, were you baptized? Yeah, when? As a baby. And they'll say, doesn't work. You got to get baptized, really. And when that person supposedly gets rebaptized, what is that person saying? He's, he or she is calling God a liar. A liar. Namely, that when God gave him or her his name in baptism, he wasn't telling the truth and everything that goes with it. So I'm telling you this because you're, you maybe have encountered people like this, or maybe you may be tempted to do this. Don't ever do it. If someone comes up to you and says, oh, you need to be rebaptized because you were baptized as a baby, you can just give them a theological middle finger and say, no, thank you. I'm full of the Holy Spirit because God gave me his name. 
is that the, so that they feel that they do it the free will, they choose to be baptized, or they have control? No, I think, I think Robin, the issue is this here with the Pentecostals, is they, they have a presupposition in their heads and their hearts before they ever read scripture. And what is the presupposition? Number one, the water baptism in the triune name gives you nothing. And therefore, how do you get the Holy Spirit? Well, if it ain't through water baptism in the triune name, it's got to be something else. And then they read other parts of the scripture and say, oh, well, it has to be when you speak in tongues, then you're finally baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a fundamental presupposition before they ever read the Bible. So how do they get baptized? Well, they'll get baptized with water in the triune name, but they'll say it doesn't give you anything. You get baptized to do God something. You see, I did it. Check it off. Did it. Well, that's what I mean. The yeah. free will, I did it. Okay, I yeah, in that sense, yes. Yes, yeah. Um, Ephesians 4, the baptism by which we've been regenerated by water and the spirit, John 3, 5, that's the Nicodemus conversation, and given the one and the same spirit to drink, 1 Corinthians 12. Yet from misunderstanding this teaching, we Lutherans can too easily fall into the same trap as the Pentecostals by concluding that every baptized person has the Holy Spirit as a permanent possession that can never be lost. The notion that we possess the spirit misreads the scriptures and misapplies the teaching of the church. Even though Christ gives us the Holy Spirit through his word and baptism, Matthew 28, we do not possess the spirit any more than a wife possesses her husband and his love because she's married to him. The giving and receiving of love in marriage is a lifelong business that has its foundation in the right of marriage. So too, the ongoing reception of the Holy Spirit has its foundation in baptism. After all, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. A thing can be possessed, but not a, not a person. And that leads to another point. What, what I've experienced, and you can bear me out, you can do a Google search or you can research it yourself, but many Pentecostals now deny the Trinity. They deny the Trinity, which means they do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, but rather a force to be possessed. That process of receiving what is given begins with a single event, just as breathing begins at our birth, and just like married life starts with a wedding. Just as a husband gives himself and his love to his wife on the day of their marriage, so God the Father gave us his Holy Spirit through Jesus on the day that we were baptized. And that's with water, of course. The Spirit who creates and maintains our faith in God. But that's not the end of it. We who have been given the Spirit in baptism keep on receiving the Holy Spirit from God the Father for as long as we live here on earth. So in that sense, we never possess the Spirit. Namely, when, when Dr. Kleinig speaks like this, we do not possess, possess he, he means like we own it and can never lose it. Got that? Just as we never possess the light of the sun. In fact, for the whole of our life as baptized people, we keep on receiving the Holy Spirit. That's why in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit then is spoken as a gift. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2. Paul therefore tells the Christians in Ephesus, who've already received the Holy Spirit as a seal, of their redemption in baptism, Ephesians 1, to be filled 
with the Spirit whenever they assemble for worship in Ephesians 5. So baptized, given the Holy Spirit as a gift, and then continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this ongoing reception of the Holy Spirit, if you're picking up the drift. The various aspects of the biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit make sense only if we realize that Christ does not just give us his Holy Spirit once for all, at one point in our lives, but continually. And that not partially, but fully. Jesus is the fountain, the spring from which we receive the Holy Spirit, like drinking water from a tap, as he says in John 7. When he declares that his words are spirit and life in John 6, Jesus tells us that he gives his life-giving spirit through his word. So every time you come to church, what's the guts of a church service? The word, the word from the Old Testament, from an epistle, and from a holy gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in those words of God, who's at work? Holy Spirit, continually giving himself to you an ongoing reception for the edification of your faith, or if you need to be, repented. Okay? The various aspects of the biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit make sense. Uh, let's see, I read that, didn't I? Uh, let me get to the right part. So when, uh, let's see here, gotta get to the right spot. So John 6, he tells us that he gives his life-giving spirit through his word. So Paul likewise teaches us in Galatians 3 that we receive the spirit by hearing God's word as it addresses us. So wherever God's word is proclaimed and enacted, wherever it is used in meditation and prayer, we can be sure that Christ is there giving the Holy Spirit for us to receive as the greatest of all the gifts from him. Every Sunday, the risen Lord Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into us as he did with his 11 disciples on that first Easter evening in Jerusalem in John 20. Remember he said, receive the Holy Spirit. How do you do it? He breathed on them, which means he spoke to them. So in other words, as Jesus said in John 20, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. As he speaks those words, that's when he's breathing out the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit fills those in the upper room there in John 20. And so the point that Dr. Kleining is correctly making is when you come to church and you hear the words of Christ, he is giving you the Holy Spirit. You are ongoingly receiving the Holy Spirit. So again, if a Pentecostal mocks you, Lutherans, especially you LCMSers, as not being full of the Holy Spirit, you can say, dear brother, you're, you're just wrong. Let me teach you. That's why I'm doing this. You can teach. Let's keep going. Since this is true, we go to church and have our daily devotions in order to be filled with the Spirit. This happens when we hear the Word of God in the Bible readings and the sermon. It also happens when we receive Christ's body and blood as our Spirit-filled, Spirit-giving food and drink for our journey through life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it's a supernatural eating, it's a supernatural drinking, or a Spirit-filled eating and drinking. In Holy Communion, I, I have to pause there, because, okay, so when you go to communion, whose words do you hear? Christ's, right? That's why pastor turns and faces the congregation and says, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and said, take ye, this is my body. Those are Christ's words. So as you're hearing Christ's words, who is also at work? The Holy Spirit. 
And as you with your mouths eat and drink the body and blood of Christ with the bread and wine, the Holy Spirit is at work. You are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you, you can never divorce or separate who? Jesus and his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Never divorce the two. Jesus says, my words are spirit. That means Holy Spirit and life. John 6, 63. So again, every time you hear the words of Christ, who's what work? Not only Jesus, but also the Holy Spirit. This constant reception of the Holy Spirit. That's my point. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down here? Okay, let me finish this and then we'll pray and get out of here. So that too is why we, we do well to begin each day with meditation on what? On God's word and prayer. Jesus encourages us to depend on the spirit by giving us this promise in Luke 11. He says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think this is something we all need to learn. I know I do. We need to learn this from our Lord Jesus Christ and ask God the Father to give us the Holy Spirit continuously in our life for our edification, for our faith in Christ, or for our repentance, or whatever it is. I think, I think we need to grow in this part of our lives as Christians. I know I do. Okay. So keep that in mind. If we're going to live in the Spirit then, and if we're going to walk in the Spirit, as the New Testament teaches us, by the way, on our daily journey through life with Jesus, we need to ask God the Father daily for his Holy Spirit. That is why we pray, or that is what we pray for, in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. In the small catechism, Luther gives this explanation on how God's kingdom comes to us. So in other words, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, as our Lord instructed, what are you praying for? Catechism says this, correctly and faithfully and biblically says this, God's kingdom comes... When our Heavenly Father gives us his dun, 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 Holy Spirit, so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. There's a reason why Pastor Coleman makes the kids memorize all this stuff. Maybe you parents don't like it. We'll get over it. I mean, seriously, if you don't learn your ABCs, you can't move on. So, you know, catechesis with Coleman is kindergarten. You've got to learn this stuff, okay? Because if you don't, you can't move on. You don't mature. That's why in the Missouri Senate, there's, there's, there's not so many mature Christians anymore. They don't have a foundation. Seriously, catechesis classes with kids, I've observed. I'm making a general statement here. There's a crisis in the Missouri Senate and the church in general on catechesis, either with adults and kids together, is that it's just get-together time and what do you think time. It's socialization time. I mean, the pastor, generally speaking, in the church has forgotten that he has authority to do what? To teach the word of God authoritatively. <laughs> Not just, well, kids, what do you think? What would you like to do today? I mean, that's how we parent, isn't it? I'm speaking in general. What would you like to do today, honey, huh? And again, I repeat, just to because I'm on a roll and I can't help myself. Watch how parents parent. And we did it. We're as guilty as anybody. We'll tell a child to do something. And how do we always end our, our mandate? With what word? It's always a rhetorical question. Okay. The parents are always asking for permission from their children by asking, okay? So Sawyer, will you eat your green beans? Okay? I'm having fun. You understand? My point to, to the analogy is pastors are not to teach that way. I don't do this with the kids and the adults saying, okay? No, it's this is what the word of God says. And you're learning this about the ongoing reception 
of the Holy Spirit. So let's finish it. So the daily life of faith then depends on our daily reception of the Holy Spirit through daily meditation on God's word. So some of you maybe have the higher things link and maybe some of you have the higher things devotions and listen to those or some other you might have the uh, portals of prayer or something like that. Or you can just take your Bibles out yourself. Okay. But this is this is how we receive the Holy Spirit daily and daily prayer for what he's promised to give us through his word. Now, my good friend, John Kleinig wrote this, and this is why I shared this with you, because it's so delicious. Uh, so I hope this is helpful. Any, any final questions? Yeah, Diddy, please. Because the, the Holy Spirit's at work in the word. Yeah. Now back to Robin's question earlier. Um, here's, here's what's happened. I want you, this is just to, to, to watch for, okay? The scriptures teach that where the word of God is being taught, preached, read, meditated upon, whether that's in church or at home, who's at work? Okay, this is very important. Now, when you divorce the two, then you get cults. And you have people that tyrannize you. Remember Robert Tilton last week? Remember Robert Tilton, his television show, Success in Life? Robert Tilton would stop in midstream. And he, oh, the Holy Spirit just told me. <laughs> and again, that, that, then you know that what he's done is he's divorced the Holy Spirit from the word of God. That leads to cult and very satanic lies. That's why John, this is my final point, this is, and then we'll pray. This is why John in his epistle in the New Testament says you must test the spirits. You must listen to what they say. And if they're saying things that are apart from the word of God, there ain't the Holy Spirit going on. I don't care what they claim. All right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.